0: Welcome to The Smoke Pit. Joining us today, Homer Hickam, best-selling author, published the memoir, Rocket Boys, which was developed into the critically acclaimed film, October Sky. Also served in the U.S. Army and served in Vietnam and went on to work at NASA for an extended period of time. Homer, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Daniel. It's great to be with you today.
0: Also joining us again, Abbas Heider, the uh, CEO and founder of Aspeto Inc., uh, probably one of the coolest guys that I know. Uh, between the three of us, I think we've seen the majority of the world in our travels.
1: For me, I started traveling around the world courtesy of the United States Army. <laughs> uh, and uh, like a lot of uh, young men my age, uh, got to visit wonderful tropical country of Vietnam. Uh, but um, uh, I have traveled quite a lot and um, been received very well, I uh, no matter where I go. I guess I'm kind of like uh, Mark Twain an in, in innocent abroad, so people well, tend to after me.
0: Yeah, you started off as everyone's favorite cadet uh, while you were in college, and now you're everyone's favorite tourist.
1: <laughs> Could very well be, yes. <laughs> Everybody's favorite cadet was, uh, that's what I, I tended to call myself, but I'm not sure the other cadets agreed.
0: Yeah. And I was uh, I was reading on the Army's um, uh, publication that you spent the majority of your time in Vietnam living uh, in uh, makeshift shelters. Uh, and you figure if you were with the Corps of Engineers that they would have had like, you know, like they, they would have put some effort into where you were living. They would they would have made some nice uh, some nice huts.
1: Well, I think they were more interested in making sure that field grade and above uh, lived properly. I was a lieutenant, so yeah. <laughs> I didn't care where I live or how I live. <laughs> Uh, I was under canvas most of the time, which explained why I didn't like camping for about 20 some years after that. Um, But um, no, we got by. Uh, You did what you had to do. As long as I could uh, stack some sandbags around wherever I was.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, fair enough. Um, So interesting enough, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal got his breakout role in the movie October Sky, and he went on to play – the, uh, the main character in the movie Jarhead uh, about uh, time in the Marine Corps. And during that movie, he tells the drill instructor that he got lost on his way to college. And uh, you know he portrayed you in that movie. And according to your new book, Don't Blow Yourself Up, uh, you just flat out forgot to even apply to college. Uh,
1: that is true. Uh, real quick on Jake. Um, his parents really, really, really wanted him to go to college. And he promised them if, if they would let him be an October sky that that would be the next thing he'd do is go to college. But uh, of course, his reputation got to be uh, such as an actor. Um, he uh, after he went to Columbia for about one semester and said, "The heck with this! I I can make my living, and I want to make my living as an actor and working in the movie business." So uh, they reluctantly agreed to let him do that. And, and for for me, uh, yes, um, as the the book and the movie portray, I got really, really busy my senior year in high school uh, with the rocket <laughs> and going off to the National Science Fair. I had kind of thought about going to the Air Force Academy, um, but uh, I was turned down by Vice President Nixon. Actually, I applied through him, and he and there probably was a million better qualified people that applied through the vice president. So I got turned down and I forgot to apply anywhere else. I just figured I'd go somewhere. And uh, fortunately, my mom realized that. And without telling me, she applied uh, for me down at Virginia Tech, which is a good thing, a pretty good little engineering school down there. And um, it was uh, only 100 miles from Colwood, so I could hitchhike back and forth. Uh,
2: Only a few hours from Mary Washington, where he told me there would be uh, some students at that time who would uh, go to Virginia Tech in a bus, and they would have mixers and dances
1: and all that. Well, that's right, a bus. Um, so um, Virginia Tech, when I went there, was uh, al- almost a pure military college. So we had around 3,500 cadets, and there was probably a thousand other students that were had either already served in the military or the women students. There was about only about a couple hundred uh, women there. Um, all of whom had no interest whatsoever in the likes of me. I have to say. So, <laughs> so um, uh, uh, what the cadet corps did was import um, women from other colleges <laughs> to try to to try to rein. Uh, us uh, imagine them. that happening now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so no. They would, um,
1: they would bus uh, students, uh, women students from places like Mary, uh, Mary Washington. Down to us for an evening, and uh, we would sit across the dance area, wherever it was, and kind of look at each other and size each other. <laughs> it was pretty awkward, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, you said, in, it. Uh,
0: inter- you said in you said in interviews that you feel uh, a lot of things have changed over the years, and uh, things that you and your friends did in your youth uh, would be frowned upon, or that would get people suspended or expelled from school, or that uh, the country has lost their sense of humor. As, uh, as time has moved on and reading, you know, some of your memoirs and some of your interviews, it really seems like uh, you had such a unique experience growing up where you were surrounded by such a, a colorful cla- uh, cast of characters, all with big personalities that uh, that led you to some really zany adventures uh, that, you know, range from going from West Virginia to the National Science Fair and winning the gold medal to making a cannon, uh, for your university from, you know, scrap brass and, uh, the carriage made by, uh, the local correctional facility.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'd have to say almost everything we did as kids would be frowned upon today. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, growing up in Colwood was, uh, in West Virginia was, um, was it was it was a good place uh, actually in terms of being able to, to get outside and go up in the mountains and play and um uh, also um it, the the town was very supportive of the kids and the teachers that were there and of course you really didn't get away with much because uh even though there were there were only a couple of households in the town that had a telephone uh, nonetheless, somehow word got back to your mom's, um, uh, a lot faster than you could get back home. You did something wrong. Okay. So, um, yeah, <laughs> so we didn't get away with, we always thought we were getting away with something. I mean, we weren't, uh, mean or malicious or, or, or hurtful, but we just get into mischief. Uh, it would be that kind of thing. Of course, the rock the building yeah. rockets might be something more than mischief that can tend to be kind of dangerous. and. I wrote all about that in in, in Rocket Boys and and yeah. how that was received, of course.
2: <laughs> you talk about community and um, you know growing up in Coalwood, West Virginia. Uh, there's uh, there's a scene in the movie when you know it's announced that the Sputnik is going to go over Coalwood, West Virginia, and everyone just gathered in your front yard. Um, why why your yard? <laughs> why couldn't well, they just watch it from their own yard?
1: Well, movie magic, it was actually the backyard, not the front yard. But oh, okay. <laughs> I understand why they used the front yard. <laughs> no, uh, what happened was that, uh, so it it was um, starting to occur to me that there was just something wonderful happening with uh, with this first Earth satellite. And uh, even though it was launched by our, our awful enemy, the Soviet Union, it still, I'd read a lot of science fiction growing up, as, uh, and uh, it just seemed to me that it was something very, very special. And then I read in the paper, the local paper, that Sputnik, which everybody in the whole world was talking about and worried about, was going to fly over uh, Macdowell County. Uh, and by the track in the paper, it looked like it's going right over Colwood. So um, I told my mom that I was going to watch Sputnik in the backyard at night. And you're to remember that there was virtually no light pollution. Uh, we didn't have street lights or anything. The only thing lights would be on would be people's back porches and so on. So uh, at that time, the, it, we really had a dark sky there to, to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my mom told the neighbor lady, Miss Sheritz, that. Sonny, as I was called back then, was going to watch Sputnik in our backyard that night. And Mrs. Sherrods walked across the yard and told Mrs. Mahoney, who walked across the yard and told Mrs. Todd, who walked across, I can name all these families uh, <laughs> all down in a row. And I think uh, like happens when conversations occur like that from person to person, the the message got a little muddled and it, and it was that you could only see Sputnik from our backyard. So, uh, <laughs> so.
2: Was it a moment of inspiration, you think, Um, is that what led to the building of the rockets or was it more of a competing with Russia? Like there was not there was so much hatred for the enemy. And you were like, you know, we got to catch up and we have to do this. I'm going to take it upon myself. What was it?
1: Yeah, there was a little bit of that. But I I would have to say um, that it was but that night when I saw it go over, I, I would not have been. More impressed if it had been got on a golden chariot flying <laughs> over than seeing that, because it's so different. I mean, honestly, in Colwood, having an airplane fly over was an event. OK, but um, but this was so different. It, it was like it, it was it had such steady purpose. It was like there was nothing going to stop this as it was going over. And of course, um, I knew that um, that the United States was now going to try really hard to catch up. Uh, with the Russians. So I was just simply inspired by what looked like this great adventure that was about to occur. And the only way that I figured that I could get involved with it at that time was to build a rocket. And I wasn't alone. There were thousands of uh, young people across the country at that time that were so inspired. And of course, what we heard was, well, we don't have a rocket as good as the Soviet Union has. And so we wanted to help out, and that was one of the best ways to help out. But then it became an end to itself. How could we build a rocket?
0: Yeah, and that um, you know, that that led you to pursue higher education. And then after you, know, you graduated college and you, you served your tour of duty in Vietnam, uh, you ended up doing some government contracting, which eventually ended up at a uh, position at NASA. Um uh, and-
1: yeah, what happened was uh, after Vietnam, um, I became a Department of Army civilian and uh, came back to Huntsville and um, uh, here in Alabama and started... For working. the
0: Hellfire Missile Program, right?
1: Well, yeah, for the Army Missile Command, a number of different, uh, mostly anti-tank. I was in armor in Vietnam, so that was kind of... A, I knew a little bit about rockets, so, so that kind of worked. I did end up, um, though... Uh, going to Germany for three years to work for the Army Training Command over there. But that was in a place called Grafenbier, um, where it was a big training range for uh, armored units. So, again, it all kind of fit in. And NASA actually hired me from Grafenbier uh, to come and work at Marshall Space Flight Center for um, um, a rather peculiar reason. And that was that I had become, in the process of working for the Corps over in uh, in Germany, learned a lot about a uh, office computer system. So I actually came back to implement, the Rocket Boy came back to implement an office computer system for Marshall Space Flight Center, which I did for about a year. And then I got off into training astronauts, which I dearly loved.
0: Which, uh, you know, provided so many uh, unique experiences and memory, uh, memories. Among those, uh, you got to teach David Letterman how to scuba dive when his show uh, came down to, um, uh, to, to experience a little bit of astronaut culture.
1: Yeah, what happened there was, uh, so um, I was over in Japan uh, when the Challenger uh, disaster occurred. I was brought back from Japan. Uh, I, I had gone over there to start training the first Japanese astronauts uh, to work in the space lab. Uh, which was a um, a precursor to the space station that um, was in the um, shuttle cargo bay. So it looked like we weren't going to fly for a while. So I was brought back from um, from Japan, and um, I was assigned to the solid rocket motor redesign. Uh, team. And before that got all geared up, I didn't have a whole lot to do. And I heard that a fellow West Virginian by the name of Ed Buckby at the Space and Rocket Center, at a world famous space camp, had decided, to, uh, he was the first director over there, he decided that they wanted to build a swimming pool to teach neutral buoyancy simulation to the young people at Space Camp and Space Academy. That's where you use water, the buoyancy of water to simulate the weightlessness of space. And I'd been working in the big neutral buoyancy simulator uh, there at Marshall Space Flight Center. And uh, it just seemed like a great opportunity for the Space Camp to have its own uh, neutral buoyancy simulator. So I went over and convinced uh, Ed Buckby to build what became the underwater astronaut trainer. So 25 feet deep, 30 feet across, still at Space Camp and um, uh, my wife linda and i both student instructors uh, would go over in the evening and and started training the kids on how to how to simulate space and water Uh, in the process um, i came up with the idea of using what was called a llama helmet it was a bubble helmet looked just like a space helmet it was made in france and to uh, for some of the kids to wear, it was kind of an advanced piece of equipment, so not all of them could wear it. But nonetheless, it looked really, really cool. Uh, so one day, I got a call from a fellow in New York who said that um, they wanted to have an all-underwater show up in New York with on the David Letterman show, and uh, they wanted to use a llama helmet. And could I come up, bring a llama helmet, and train David Letterman? scuba dive so i did i went up on the weekend spent the weekend with david uh, taught him to, I, I didn't realize that he didn't know to, how to scuba dive i thought i was just going to teach him the helmet yeah uh, i did have to teach him this, everything and uh so i taught him in the red roof in the uh, swimming pool uh actually across the river in new jersey uh and we had a wonderful time up there and then years later um when October Sky came out, I was invited back to the Letterman show to talk about the movie. And um, you had
0: laryngitis. Uh, well, yeah, uh, the first time.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I missed. I missed the first time. The second time, though, was good. Uh, the first time was we were going to talk about the book, and I had laryngitis, couldn't talk. to him. The second time, we we're going to talk about the movie. And so they had a clip of October Sky they wanted to show. But David leaned over to me um, in a break and asked if. Uh, what he really wanted to do was to show a film of me teaching him how to wear that bubble helmet in in New Jersey. And I went, sure, let's do that. And that's, that's what they showed rather than a clip of October sky, which um, did not amuse the producers of that movie. I have to tell you.
0: I, I, I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> but looking back fondly on it as a, you know, a great memory to have. And I know it really developed, um, you know, your, your passion for, for being underwater. And you mentioned having um uh, a lot of experience in Honduras, isn't that some of the most beautiful scuba diving down there in the coral reefs?
1: It actually is. Uh, yeah, they're still pretty pristine in um, the Bay Islands. Uh, there, yeah. Roatán is the island that most people know. That's yeah, where, that's
0: where I learned how to scuba dive. Okay,
1: great. Yeah, it's beautiful, <laughs> absolutely beautiful. Uh, that uh, barrier reef starts up in Belize and comes all the way down uh, through the Bay Islands, and yeah, it's it's uh, an incredible place to dive.
0: Now, so do you think it was more your um, fascination with military history or your love of being underwater that uh, that led you to um, to explore more of the World War II um, history and uh, ended up writing uh, the, the the book uh, Torpedo Junction about the uh, the submarine fights?
1: Yeah, that was my first book. Came out in 1989. Took about, uh, I don't know, at least a dozen years of research. And
0: uh, so I was trying to
1: establish a writing career. As, that uh, that was my other passion in life was to be a writer. And um, what I as I started to freelance write that's while I was working for the Army and then also NASA, um, I, I read a lot of, since I was scuba instructor, I read a lot of scuba diving magazines. And I've Figured that I could write as as well as as ones who were writing for those magazines, and uh, so what I found out was that uh, these magazines really liked stuff that I wrote about uh, shipwrecks, especially if I did my research and um, uh, and had a little history and what I was diving on. So uh, I got a little reputation for being a uh, a writer uh, about shipwrecks, and so. Uh, and um, it was around 1973 that I got a call from um, uh, Skin Diver Magazine um, to go up to North Carolina and to dive on a shipwreck up there that the some divers were saying was a German U-boat. And it was like, no, it's probably not. I mean, uh, why would a German U-boat be off of North Carolina? Uh, yeah. It's very secret uh, part of the war. And uh, so I went up, and I did know enough when I saw it, but it was indeed a German Type 7C uh, U-boat. Uh, oh, I did wow. I like uh, found a skeleton in the conning tower, 88-millimeter uh, shells all over the place, torpedoes wow. out It was a, an amazing wreck, and uh, so I wanted to know more, and that ultimately led me to start all that research that led to writing about that battle off of North Carolina, uh, which was called Torpedo Junction, um, where over 400 of our ships, American and Allied ships, were sunk, and um, eight German U boats. It was a, a horrendous battle um, with a lot of lives lost that was kept very much a secret during World War II. Yeah. I to
0: yeah.
2: go back uh, to your time in NASA and Missile Defense Agency. So, you know the importance of innovation. Do you think uh, that America's focus has shifted? From innovation, Because, I mean, the the generation today, do you think it's inspired by the same things that,
1: you know, the generation in your time would be? Well, uh, of us, first off, uh, of course, I spent a lot of time over at Space Camp and Space Academy and Aviation Challenge uh, here in Huntsville at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. So um, I am seeing a lot of young people come in. Um, and we also have a robotics camp and a cyber camp, and they are—they are just amazing young people. Uh, so I'm always energized when I when I meet with them and uh, realize that actually I think our future is in uh, pretty good hands. Um, we just we just have to uh, to not be necessarily swayed by all the bad news that we see in the news uh, these days. About our educational system and, and about our young people. I, I have a lot of faith in them that uh, all will be well. Of course, in terms of innovation, we don't have to go much further than um, talking about SpaceX, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, is so uh, has. And again, if you look at who is SpaceX, yeah, we got Elon, uh, but um, actually, most of the, the engineers that I met when I was out there were in their 20s and their 30s, uh, at the oldest, and um, they, they're the ones that took these concepts and made them real. Uh, so there is a lot of innovation out there. Uh, I have also not, know a lot of the folks that, at Blue Origin, all of the new space uh, companies that are coming. That's mostly young people.
2: But what's driving them? Do you think it's patriotism? Do you think it's just being intrigued by technology? uh, Because this is what worries me, right? Um, There was a Wall Street Journal uh, poll um, survey that was done in 1998 um, where 70% of the respondents said patriotism was important to them. 62% said religion. And I think it was closer to 60% that said that having a family, starting a family, that was what was important to them. Basically, the poll was about American values. And the most recent Wall Street Journal uh, poll that was conducted in 2023, that number just tanked. I'm talking about like 38% said patriotism was important to them. 39% said religion. You know, I think it was closer to only 20% that said family. So do you think that what is inspiring or what's pushing this generation, I don't want to say, can it be bought easily um, by our enemies, or do you think that? I mean, we're are we getting the most out of it? How we
1: used to be. Compared to- <laughs> well, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you I wasn't worried about just what you're talking about in terms of um, our young people knowing the roots of our country and. Um, how we are a revolutionary uh, concept uh, started back in uh, the late 18th century and uh, uh, has spread throughout the world. The, the whole idea of having a republic and a democracy and so on just simply didn't exist until we came along and uh, revolutionized uh, our approach uh, to to letting the people have a say in the government and, uh, and it's worked for For over two centuries now, but it it is really, really necessary. I think to um, continue to educate our kids in how important it is to understand where we came from, where our roots are from, Um, and I think that that's true uh, for everyone. It's it's one of the reasons that I think the the, my memoirs are so popular is that ultimately that's about family. Exactly um, about how important family. Is And it's one of the things that I encourage when I'm out talking to uh, parents and grandparents is to not be remiss in telling the kids, uh, even though you think they don't want to hear it, I think everyone wants to know where they came from. And so tell them stories um, about, you know, crazy Uncle Joe when he was uh, down in Florida or wherever, you know, just tell stories about your family. Uh, so if you don't know where you're from, then uh, I think it makes it more difficult to succeed in life, and that even includes, of course, adopted kids. You're part of the family. You need to know who who these parents are, how they met, um, and my parents were really good at that. It's why uh, I wrote a book called "Carrying Albert Home" about when they were uh, just married and they had this alligator, and long story. But anyway, they. <laughs> <laughs> um, It's uh, those kind of stories, and then I think you're a lot stronger uh, to to know who your family is and uh,
2: where where are we with our technology compared to say Russia or China. Um, You know, we've obviously heard a lot that you know the hypersonic missile side
1: we're a little behind. I don't know if we've caught up yet or not. Yeah, it seems like uh, we're always behind on a hypersonic missile. Uh, I've never quite understood that. I don't really believe it. Um, I mean, if if you want to deliver a warhead anywhere in the world, uh, unfortunately, there are many countries that can do that right now. There is no real secret to that. And stopping something that enters the atmosphere at 15,000 miles per hour is still a, a, a big trick in order to do that. So. Delivering warheads, I think we're okay on on doing that. Um, But I I think that, of course, uh, I really like that we're going back to the moon. I think that that will spur um, technology across the world. And um, uh, to my mind, pushing the frontier by going back and, and actually settling the moon and mining the moon is really the direction that NASA should be going uh, these days. I'm, of course, the boy
0: from Colewood, West Virginia, would think about mining the moon.
1: Absolutely, I, I and I would tell every. I even told. Well, I met. Um,
0: Your father uh, would be proud.
1: <laughs> well, I know he would. Uh, I I met Jack Kennedy uh, back in 1960. He was uh, just a senator at the time. He was running for president, and I famously. Ask him there in um, in the county seat of McDowell County West Virginia what what did he think we ought to do in space and when he he uh, allowed us how he wanted to know what I thought we should do I said well I think we ought to just go up to the moon and mine a blank thing and uh, which was easy to say because all the coal miners were standing around you know and they thought that was funniest thing they ever heard he yeah, said later sure that go got a
0: good response. Well, he said, elect me president,
1: and maybe we will. And I, I, so therefore, I've taken credit for the Apollo program over the years. <laughs> but I think von Brown probably had more to do with it uh, than, than I did. I think we need a frontier to push up against. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we get uh, too settled in. It's like, okay, so now we're just going to uh, – we have this great country, and so let's just bash each other. Let's just fight each other over the spoils of it. And that's just the wrong, wrong approach. I think this country always needs something to push up against. And uh, I'm hoping the moon, uh, going to the moon and, uh, and settling down there will be, you know, for the next century, we can spend uh, doing that. And And I saw, I really hope that that's what occurs rather than more wars and, and technology that's going in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, for as much animosity as there was between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the space race, the, a lot of people would be surprised to know that there was actually a fair amount of cooperation uh, between the two nations' uh, space agencies, so much to the fact where when I was visiting the Cosmonaut Museum uh, in Moscow, Russia, they have a wing dedicated to the Apollo program, and they actually have Michael Collins' spacesuit from the um, uh, the first uh, successful lunar mission. And furthermore, their display says that the uh, the astronauts Buzz and, and Neil that they went down to the moon. They actually had uh, Soviet Union flags uh, tucked away inside their spacesuits, and so that and some moon rocks and stuff were uh, delivered to their counterparts. So I, I really appreciate that you said that because as much as you know you do need a, a healthy rivalry to inspire you uh, to go. Ultimately, I personally feel that one of the most important things to us going back to the moon or ending up on Mars or you know beyond uh, throughout the solar system is um, uh, also a healthy respect for each other, that we are doing this not for our individual uh, credences or nations or stuff, but for the betterment of humanity. Yeah, I mean,
1: absolutely. Uh, that was one of the things, after the Space Lab J uh, mission, uh, I was assigned to the International Space Station, so that would have been around 1994, uh, long before it flew. And uh, I went over with a team to Moscow. Of course, the Soviet Union had fallen... Uh, a few years before that, and um, we found um, the Russian space agency in awful disarray. And um, so uh, we went over there with the idea of um, utilizing their experience already with space stations. And um, so when we when we got there, it was like negotiating with the Russians is always an interesting thing. the, the, the Japanese are Every country that I go to and negotiate with, they're all a little bit different. The Japanese, uh, we used to laugh and and was, were prepared for that. That they always um, put the agreement in front of you, but they wanted you to sign off like the second day that you were over there because that's when jet lag really hits. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: but yeah. um, that's but, the same
0: reason that they put the the candy bars next to the uh, the, the cash register because when you're mentally fatigued. Right. Uh, then you're more likely to make impulse decisions off of uh, uh of ease and gratification versus uh more logical decisions for the uh the overall well-being.
1: Exactly. But we were savvy to all that. So um, <laughs> <laughs> but when we started negotiating with the Russians, we didn't really know what to expect and so um essentially uh what was interesting to me and very intriguing was uh I was the oldest person uh, in the group. And I was just in my early fifties at that time. Uh, and the rest of my NASA counterparts, they were sitting around the table with me. were mostly in their forties, thirties, twenties sitting across from us, um, were the same people that put uh, Sputnik up, they had never left where all the old oh, wow. veterans by then had long since retired. And, um, so they're still there. They were still there. And that's who we were negotiating with. And, um, they, of course, they were still smarting from the Soviet Union falling. So, uh, no matter what we proposed, the answer was "nit, nit, nit." <laughs> you know, we we are the uh, we are the number one space power in the world. We know what we're doing. You don't know what you're doing. Blah blah. So, um, but I was still intrigued by them. So, where you make deals with the Russians is the party afterwards, and there's always a party after. <laughs> <laughs> any meeting every day, And that's when the vodka comes out. And you have to be really uh, careful with that. Uh, Americans don't really know how to handle their vodka, you know, when when you're overseas. So I was very careful about it. Drank water most of the time. Uh, so yeah,
0: you said uh, that one of your fellow cadets had a little bit too much to drink and went and uh, mooned the girls dormitory at the next college over and that he was a good friend of yours. But you understand why he got kicked out of the program. Yeah,
1: well, that's another story.
0: <laughs> a little, a little too much to drink. So, so uh, to support your part, point, I was
1: not—I was nowhere near when that happened. Uh, no, just, you
0: weren't, yeah, but he had a little bit too much to drink. <laughs> yes
1: just in case there's any kind of reciprocal uh, uh, time frame for uh, for getting kicked out of Virginia Tech. I'll say I was nowhere <laughs> near a event when it occurred.
0: No, you've already uh, gotten honorary doctorates. You know, you're good. You don't. <laughs> yeah, I'm
1: probably okay. Uh, but I have a couple of scholarships at Virginia Tech, so they'll probably let me let me skate. Yeah. Uh, but
0: the Russians, uh, so I started
1: talking to the Russians. It was one of the first times I really started talking about building rockets back in West Virginia. I hadn't written anything about it or, or thought about it very much. and um, But I wanted to let them know how Sputnik had inspired me and thousands of young people in the United States. And they didn't know that. They were not aware of the impact that Sputnik had on the young people of, uh, of our country and across the world. And they were, they were happy to hear that. It pleased them. And uh, they even uh, asked me to go to uh, if I wanted to see Sputnik and it turned out they built two of them and uh, they flew one at random. So they took me to a warehouse and I got to see the other Sputnik. And so it was like so little Sonny Hickam, after all those years, uh, uh, got to see Sputnik again in a way. And uh, they also started saying uh, Doc dot a lot more to our proposals after we made that personal connection so um uh, so yeah it uh, i was glad that i was over there i met uh, a lot of folks uh the, the russians uh, who were just super super individuals there's like everybody else people around the world are just super it's governments that have problems uh people to people almost invariably as a positive experience
0: and you um you said that that was such a surreal moment for, for little Sonny Hickam, um, and you know to, to essentially get to see an up close version of uh, the thing that was you know hundreds of miles above your head uh, from your youth, and I, I think that is um uh, a really profound thing to to acknowledge is that none of us are the same person we were uh, when we were in high school as as we continue to age, and you've said in uh, in your books before that uh, you had to have a heart-to-heart with yourself as to why you experienced some of the adversities you did. You know, why, um, you know Why did your brother react the way he did? Oh, because I pulled a prank on him. Why were your parents tough? Oh, because my grades could have been better. And so you said eventually you had to face the fact um, that uh, you had some accountability for some of the things that happened to you. And so with writing different books from where you know you're not the protagonist, you're not the main character... To writing your memoirs where you essentially are, uh, how do you draw that honesty from yourself uh, to acknowledge what your faults were and not write a romanticized version of your youth?
1: Yeah, writing an honest memoir is really, really tough. I, I have said that I think I got a million dollars worth of psychotherapy writing Rocket Boys, and I didn't even <laughs> know I needed it. OK, so I really not addressed in my mind the conflict that I had with my father back in the late 1950s over the rockets. I'd gone on with life. He'd gone on with life. um, But it was an important time. And that's I think that's why that book is so so successful, is that um, I allowed myself. uh, I uh, in order to write a successful memoir, I had to get inside the head of that boy, uh, Sonny Hickam, again at 14 through 17 years old, where, you know, I since then I'd, I'd gone to Virginia Tech, I'd gone to Vietnam, I'd worked for the Army Missile Command, worked for NASA, scuba instructor, wrote a book, all this kind of stuff that Sonny Hickam didn't know any of that. And so I had to get back inside his head and that was not easy to do. But once I, I did and allowed myself to do that, then the truth of the story was able to come out and that's why I was successful, I think. And then I had to do that uh, again with the Colwood way, and again with Sky then, Stone. and then the latest, and then again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it well, do blow yourself up. Was interesting. I thought that writing about Vietnam would be the hardest part, but it actually wasn't. It was writing about um, the Space Lab J mission, which had a lot of hurdles to overcome. That was a tough one. I had to write, walk a very fine line to. Be fair to everybody because um, space missions, most people just see the end result of a space mission. It all seems to go well, everybody's wonderfully trained, everybody's friendly, everybody's on the same team, but actually like any anything um, before you can reach that point where you actually launch this, uh, literally, um, this team to accomplish this mission, all this training has to occur. All this team building has to occur. And a lot of times that's not an easy thing to do, especially when you're Mm -hmm. trying to do it um, in a, in a foreign country. And so Space Lab J had its problems and I was the training manager for that mission. And so I was right in the middle of it. And that one turned out to be uh, kind of a difficult um, uh, time frame for me to write about.
0: And so how would you say that, uh, that differed from, uh, when you were trying to flesh out a protagonist, because many authors say like, you know, you never want the, um, the protagonist of your book to be a totem for you or, uh, or, um, uh, a representation of you, but in all these memoirs that you've written about your, your youth, like you were, and then not only that, but then you had to acknowledge the fact that each one of those was at a different stage in your life. So as, as an author. How do you rationalize that in your head versus how do you keep yourself separate from a protagonist in a story that's not about you? <clears throat>
1: well, I think every author will, will agree that the protagonist invariably has elements of you in it. But you do have to need you need to separate yourself from it. For instance, uh, the most the second most popular series that I've written beside the memoir is called the Josh Thurlow series. And that's uh, set during World War II. Uh, the keeper's son, the ambassador's son, and the far reaches are the trilogy. And the protagonist there, the hero is a Coast Guard captain by the name of Josh Thurlow and, uh, who grew up on the Outer Banks. And so he's quite a bit different, um, than I am. I, I, I admire old Josh, but I could not possibly be as bloodthirsty as Josh is <laughs> when, when he goes up against anybody opposing him. And so it's kind of it was kind of an interesting exercise for me to get inside the head of a character like that, um, and um, and follow his adventures uh, over these uh, these three novels. So you, you you do it. Oftentimes these fictional characters become more real than than real. Mm. They're always in your head. They're always talking to you. They're always um, want to do something that you don't necessarily want them to do. It's, it really is an interesting. Uh, exercise to go to go through that and to follow their life and to remember that you don't put everything in there that you know that they probably did but you have to be you have to exercise some control over uh, over what they do but sometimes they, they literally change the plot because you get to know these characters so well they won't leave you alone when you have them do something and they keep telling you I would never do that mm. it is interesting
2: so Homer yeah. as we talk about all these projects there's one that I'm really excited about uh, that you're working on. Um, tell us about it. I'm talking about December Sky. Are we allowed to say?
1: Yeah, I, I, I can talk a little bit about that, Abbas. Okay. Um, so, um, so October Sky, of course, everybody, uh, I, I like to say every substitute teacher in the world shows October yeah, Sky. Yeah, so it is one of my, uh, one of my yeah. favorites. So it's, a, it's a very w- well-known film. Uh, and, uh, it has held up over many, many years and it's shown, you know, on TV every day, somewhere, somebody on cable or streaming is showing it. And, uh, of course, again, it's very popular. No, it's, uh, uh,
2: and it's one thing I didn't, uh, I don't know if I told you in our uh, conversation earlier that that is also my inspiration to be in space. Uh, Dan and I talked about it in one of the podcasts before. That that is my goal, and it, it all started from there.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for letting me know that, boss. And that really makes me feel feel good. Um, I've had uh, I've made a speech at the Air Force Academy a few years back, and oh, I don't know how many cadets came up and uh, together as a group and said, "We are here because of." Uh, uh, seeing that movie October Sky. And I didn't know at first whether they were complaining <laughs> or not. But I do hear that a lot. Um so I really, really appreciate that. And I'm so glad that 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 film um has encouraged and inspired lots and lots of young people over the years to get into STEM fields and just to um to succeed in life. And and that's that's very, very flattering and, and encouraging. December Sky, uh, though, um, it's interesting. As popular as a movie uh, like October Sky was, why wasn't there a sequel to it? And there were a number of reasons, mostly contractual, why that didn't occur. And I got off doing other things and uh, writing other books and didn't worry about it uh, uh, too much. Uh, that was Hollywood's arena, not mine. And, uh, but
0: um, Plus, you were quite busy with uh, the post-film um, uh, awards uh cycle there were many film festivals or many awards even for like the screenplay adapter beat outs uh, saving private ryan that's uh, true yeah. so it's like they're you know it's not that it's not that you, you didn't want to you're just you're just a little a little busy with other things and uh, rightfully so um
1: yeah uh, appreciating I I'm not the a, impact. I'm not a screenplay writer or haven't been in the past uh but so I didn't worry about it. So but however over a period of time I did um, start negotiating with Universal Studios on getting the rights back, um, you know, for obvious reasons. They weren't going to use it. Uh, so um, so I did. Um, around 2017, I managed to get the characters back. Not the story. They still own the story of Rocket Boys, but I got the characters back. So fortunately, I'd written other books with the Rocket Boys in it um but uh, that was 2017 that's when the hurricane hit our house down in st john so i get busy with that for a while so but a long story short is that kevin sizemore is a um, well-known west virginia uh, actor that lives out in la he's done a number of movies um somehow we got in touch with each other and he was wondering about why had there never been a follow-on to october sky and um I said, well, I guess because a screenplay doesn't exist. And, um, and he said, well, why don't you write one? And I went, hmm, that sounds like fun. So I did. And I <laughs> sat down and, and uh, based a screenplay uh, on the book, The Colwood Way, which was the book that came out right after Rocket Boys. It was sort of a Christmas story in a way um, uh, that included the Rocket Boys. And so I wrote it. Kevin loved it. Um, And all of a sudden we had producers come on board the Tonnell brothers. We would we immediately wanted to film this up in West Virginia. So December Sky, based on Colwood Ways, takes place in 1959 around Christmas time uh, there in Colwood uh, with the Rocket Boys and some other events that are going on at that time. My dad's struggling to keep the mine open. Uh, my mother struggling to get my dad out of COVID. <laughs> um, the
0: strikes that were going on.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of things going on at that time. And uh, so um, it has elements of comedy in it. But uh, for the most part, it, it, there is a serious theme uh, through that about class acceptance. Um, in, in that it uh, it has a young woman that comes in who uh, class classes, COVID people consider her. Really, an underclass, and how how she is rejected by the town, and uh, and how some rally around her, and some tragic aspects to that. So it it, it um, they they liked it, and uh, so the um, we we brought on the the Tennell Brothers uh, out of Morgantown, West Virginia, who've done some very successful films, and um, to create an LLC to uh, produce this. Uh, what we, what I'm calling December sky for obvious reasons, uh, you know, people will, will recognize that and uh, rather than the Colwood way. And so, yeah, we're, we're in development on that right now. And, uh, we do hope to film it entirely in West Virginia. Um, and, um, because the West Virginia, uh, uh, film industry is up and coming. And, uh, so it seems like a great place to go. So I'm looking forward to that, uh, it's really a fun thing to work on,
0: and I'm guessing that December sky is not an anagram for the Colwood way like uh, October sky was for rocket boys.
1: yeah, I haven't really entered the December sky into uh, into an anagram software to see what <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I might be i might I might not want to do that I don't know, uh, but, you know I, I don't think it's an anagram of anything like. Uh, so, so for people who don't know or listen to this, uh, "Rocket Boys" and "October Sky" are anagrams. You take the letters of "Rocket Boys" and move them around, and they spell what do you know, "October Sky."
0: Well, oh, fantastic. Um, so, I, I I know you're you're very busy with a lot of things going on. So, if I could be so selfish, I'd like to ask you uh, one final question. Sure. Uh, do you have any advice for for those? Uh, who are seeking to uh, tell their own story and um, you know, share the things that they treasured and valued growing up with the world?
1: Yeah, I, I really think that almost everybody should do that. Uh, everybody should do that. You, you should take the time to uh, journal, at least journal, even though you not, may not do it for publication, <laughs> uh, especially as you get further along in life so that your uh, children and the young people can understand who you are, and what you've experienced. And uh, so, yeah, I encourage everybody to write down their life story. And uh, we all have a story to tell. And for those that are inclined um, and maybe have the talent to, to be a writer, memoirs are still quite popular. And if you have something unique uh, about your story, and we're all unique, um, you, you may be surprised to learn that there's a publisher out there who would love to, love to bring it out as a book.
0: Yeah, I believe a, a boss is working on a memoir called "Your Belt Must Match Your Shoes." Uh, that's a working <laughs> title. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I love a boss, it. So, many, it? so <laughs> many
2: people make that mistake: brown belt, <laughs> black shoes.
1: Oh, I do that all the time. That's <laughs> and I don't care. Abbas, <laughs> <laughs> do
0: you have a do you have a final question before we let Homer out of here?
2: Did you ever find out who stole your um, your your piece from the science competition?
0: No, I never
1: did. Those were rocket nozzles that they stole. And I would have thought through the book and the movie that, that somebody up there. Somebody. In yeah, that's what I figured. Like after that, it's clean. So bad, but they would let me know. Uh, or maybe they blew themselves up a long time ago. So they did the answer to me. <laughs> There you go. <laughs>
0: well, if you'd like to to find uh, more of Homer's writings, you can check out his website, homerhickam.com. Um, also check out his book. I'm currently listening to the audio version of don't blow yourself up. Fantastic narration. So if you're like me and you like audiobooks, um, a lot of his books are on there. Make sure you stay tuned for more, uh, news updates on, uh, December sky and, uh, Homer, thank you for your service. Thank you for the inspiration that you put out there in the world. And, uh, we're very appreciative that you took the time to take your head out of the stars to come down here and join us in the smoke pit.
1: Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Abbas. Thank you, Homer.
0: Fair winds following seas. We'll see you next time here in the Smoke Pit.